the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt from Studio West. Two big events in campaign 2024 on the Republican side this week. A new Iowa poll showing former President Trump extending his lead. And on the opposite coast, New Hampshire Governor uh, Chris Sununu endorsing Ambassador Nikki Haley for president. Both Ambassador Haley and Governor Sununu join me now. Good morning to you both. Uh, Ambassador Haley, how important is Governor Sununu's endorsement to you in the Granite State? It's big. You know, we've had a good couple of weeks. I mean, I think you can look at the fact that last week we had the most um, conservative, uh, largest conservative, freedom-loving grassroots group in the country endorse us with Americans for Prosperity. And this week we had the live free or die governor endorse us. And so it's been a good couple of weeks. I mean, we're thrilled to have it. The people of New Hampshire love Chris Sununu. And we've had hundreds of people at all of our town halls. We've been all over the place. And we're going to continue to work it all the way until the end. Governor Sununu, why Nikki Haley? Um, Look, I've been able to spend time with all the candidates. I mean, and they're all good. Ron and Chris have done a good job. I'll give them credit. Uh, They spent some time in New Hampshire. But time and again, when I'm out on the trail uh, with them, when I'm with Nikki, it's not just the policies, like, you know, the policies we agree on mostly, which is great. Um, It's the connection. It's the time that she's allowing folks to ask her questions. It's the the fact that you can see she's putting that individual first. And the number one thing I hear all the time is, boy, you just trust her. You trust her with your gut because she's making those connections. And that's what you need, especially here in New Hampshire, right? We're the live for your die state. We don't want big government. We don't want your big government solutions. We want to know that as an individual, you're going to put me first, my kids my ability to, to manage what my kids want in school first, my ability to reinstill a free market in healthcare so those costs start crushing my family. You're going to put us first, not just big governments and systems. And, and it's, it's, as she said, it's not just a few hundred people. They literally turned a thousand people away at the door for her town hall last night. The energy is here. The momentum is here. Um, it's just, it's been, it's been awesome. And that's what Live Free, for us, that's what Live Free or Die is about. And that's why I think New Hampshire is such a great first filter for the country, because it's not just about, just the, the hard base on one side or the independence or this group or that group. Uh, Nikki appeals to everybody because even if you don't agree with everything, I, we had Democrats coming up and saying, wow, you know, I don't agree with many of these policies, but just as a person, that's who you want to see in the White House. We had hardcore uh, you know, conservatives coming up saying, holy cow, this is the conservative what this country has been waiting for. Yep, that's right. And Ambassador Haley, I, uh... I, I guess one more thing, Hugh, when you're at these town halls and you ask, Who's here for the first time? Everyone's raising their hand. It's a, I, I, it's a whole new energy. It's a whole new crowd. And that has been really exciting to see. I can confirm that. First town hall I ever went to uh, was Ambassador Haley. I drove down from Maine this past summer and saw all new people there. Ambassador Haley, Noah Rothman was my guest last hour, senior writer for National Review. I asked him, town hall style, to give me a question for you. Let's play what Noah Rothman asks you from National Review. I would ask them um, if Nikki Haley is a conservative. Why, why is she a conservative? Why does she believe in conservative values? Why does she believe conservative governance is, uh, the, is in a, a valuable and superior method of social organization to progressive governance, to democratic governance? I want her to make an appeal to me as a conservative for why her administration would get done what we want to see done, why the institutions need to be reformed. How would she reform the institutions? The, the knock on her from the DeSantis camp and others is that she's a mere caretaker. Ambassador Haley, your response. Look, I mean, Ron can say all that he wants about me. It doesn't make it true. He's trying to say I'm establishment. Let's look at my record. I defeated the longest serving legislator in a primary when I first got into politics. I took on Republicans and Democrats as a lowly state senator to get them to have to show their votes on the record because they were hiding them. I was demoted off of all my committees, lost my seniority. And so I ended up running for a 
for governor. I was the Tea Party candidate again in five-way race because I wanted to make sure we brought transparency, conservatism, and freedom back to the people of South Carolina. Look at how I governed in South Carolina. I made all spending transparent. I cut taxes for small businesses. I cut taxes for veterans. I made sure that we brought in tort reform. We fought off the unions. Everything that I did, we did voter ID, the toughest illegal immigration law in the country. And then you look at my time at the UN. I cut a billion dollars right off the top the very first year. I believe government was intended to secure the rights and freedoms of the people. It was never meant to be all things to all people. And I don't want to just campaign in the live free or die state. I want to make this a live free or die country. Let's get back to economic freedom. Let's get back to individual liberty. Let's get back to America that's strong and proud. And let's do it with transparency. Let's do it by putting more money in people's pockets. And look, the very first thing I did, Hugh, when I became governor, was I said, I'm going to control what I can control. I replaced the head of every agency, whether they were doing a good job or not, because I wanted to freshen it up. Then I sent people into every agency to clean it up, pull down bureaucracy, get rid of any red tape, get rid of problem children. In some cases, we tweaked agencies. In other cases, we gutted agencies. And then I turned around and got those agencies mission-focused and reminded them they weren't supposed to be all things to all people. And I gave them 90-day benchmarks that they have to, had to start doing to show the taxpayers a return on their investment. And then I saw that they were spending because they were worried they weren't going to get the same amount of money the next year. So I put all of their spending online for every taxpayer to see. And then I incentivized them to start giving money back to the taxpayers. And magic happened. And all of a sudden, those agencies started to compete. Look at my record. Just because someone says something, that's what's happened in America for so long. Politicians will tell you something, and they think if they say it enough that you'll believe it. Don't listen to words. Look at my actions. I have fought for freedom my entire life. I've fought for this country my entire life. And it's because I grew up in a small business. I saw how hard it was to make a dollar and how easy it was for government to take it. I'm the wife of a combat veteran. I know what military families go through, and I know the importance of preventing war. I'm a mom, and I don't want my kids to continue to live like this because the debt that we have is out of control, and they'll never forgive us for that. So I know that I'm a conservative, but my actions prove I'm a conservative. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Governor Sununu, can Ambassador Haley win outright? And if she doesn't, is the race over? Uh, first, absolutely. did you just hear? I mean, who doesn't want to vote for that? And I'm dead serious. That, that's awesome. Yes, of course she can win outright. Everything is still moving uh, in these early states. In the next six weeks, you know, the whole election, if folks remember, the whole election was delayed about six months. And typically people won't make, make up their mind until after Thanksgiving. I think there's a lot of folks that are going to be talking about this over Christmas and after New Year's. So the numbers are going to really, really move uh, in the next few weeks as we lead into the January 23rd. Um, I'll tell you what, the only person that has to win New Hampshire to, to be vile is actually Donald Trump. I mean, if Trump loses in New Hampshire after being up by all this amount, He's toast, right? People will see that, that, you know, the emperor has no clothes, so to say. But Nikki's going to win this state. She, that's that's going to be the I, – I won't say a shocker because I think you're going to see the numbers really move in the final weeks. You're already seeing with Trump's comments he's getting nervous. He's realizing that not just endorsements, but there's a ground game here that, uh, that she and the uh, – that is putting together with the endorsement of AFP. Everyone's getting on board. The volunteers are coming out. That ground game uh, that she'll have here more than any other candidate, far more than, than Trump or anybody else, is going to make a huge impact in the coming weeks. 
I want to ask you both this question. I'll start with you, Governor Sununu, and I'll ask you, Ambassador Haley. Should Governor Christie drop out now? Well, look, Chris, Chris will make that decision at, at some point. You know, that's that's for him and his campaign. Um, but it, it's not. Again, I don't think. He, and I don't want. I would never speak for Ambassador Haley, but I don't think either of us are worried about Chris or Ron. They'll, they'll, they're, they're smart people. They'll, they'll make the decisions when the time is right. The, the momentum is is building here. And we just want everyone to hear the message to understand the trust that is coming with a future president and the opportunity. Aren't we all tired, Hugh? Isn't everyone just tired of the exhaustion and the drama and all that? Well, we, the people, have all the power in the world to move on, to start healing this this party, bringing the party back together again, healing the country, getting people working. Again, we might disagree, but that's okay. Uh, But working in a more optimistic, energetic way and putting this entire country back on top. If this country isn't back on top, world security is at risk. And that's why we have a former ambassador of the United Nations who understands all these international issues at such a detailed level. All these pieces come together with uh, with Nikki Haley. I'm going to turn to a couple of those national security issues in a second. Ambassador Haley, should Governor Christie drop out on Monday? He told me 100 percent he's staying in through New Hampshire. It is a very personal decision and sacrifice to decide to get into this race. It's a very personal decision. Um, and a heavy weight to get out of this race. I would never tell anyone to get out of the race. I think that is up to them. I think it's up to the voters to tell them. I think it's up to their donors to tell them. I think it's up to anybody else to have that conversation, but I will never tell a candidate to get out of the race. All right, cut number eight. This is Ron DeSantis last night with my uh, pal Sean Hannity on The Hannity Show, cut number eight. Well, Sean, I I, uh, I don't think we've spoken um, uh, since that debate. And the reaction that I've gotten has been incredible in terms of obviously being able to show that freedom works and the California models of failure, what that means for the country. But people pr- appreciated the way you set it up. And they said it was the most substantive debate that they've seen uh, in this entire election cycle. And so kudos to you for doing it. I know you he had challenged me and and you asked me to do it. So I'm glad we were able to get that done. Uh, and just know if you want to do other debates, uh, Nikki Haley and me, I'm in Donald Trump and me, I'm in. So just say the word. Uh, you've shown that you can do it in a way that I think really helps the voters. So uh, I'm game. Just let me know. Uh, how, do you, how do you respond to Ambassador Haley? By the way, same invite for this show. We're the morning show, and, and Sean's the evening show. Are you willing to go anywhere and debate Governor DeSantis with anyone? Well, I mean, look, I've debated him four times already. That's not the issue. You know, I mean, in all honesty, Ron is in the rearview mirror. Trump's in the windshield. That's who I want to debate. I want Trump on that stage. That's where my focus is. But we're going to have more debates. I mean, that's not the issue. It's deciding which ones we're going to do. We're down in that final countdown, and we've got to touch every hand and answer every question and make sure every voter has seen us. I enjoy debates. We're good at them. They've helped us in our campaign. So we're going to continue to do more. But which ones we decide to do, I want Trump on that stage. I mean, he could miss all these other debates, you, and get away with it. But you can't go to Iowa and you can't go to New Hampshire and be so arrogant to think you're going to get those votes without getting on the debate stage in the state where the election is happening. You just can't do it. People deserve to see a contrast. They deserve to see what their options are. And we want to get Trump on that stage. Do you have you had any indication that the former president will do any debates with you? I don't know what the what they're talking about with other people. I mean, look, that's for him to answer. That's not for me to answer. But I think he needs to get up there. I think the American people want him to get up there. But I know for a fact, you know, the Hawkeye State and the Granite State, they definitely want him to get up there. Now, uh, Madam Ambassador, I want to talk to you about national security for a moment. Yesterday, uh, the State Department put an embargo on 27,000 rifles that were supposed to go to Israel for the Israeli police, saying they could end up in the hands of West Bank extremists. Two days ago, President Biden accused Israel of indiscriminate bombing. What is going on inside the Biden administration vis-a-vis our ally Israel in its war with Hamas? I mean, the Biden administration is acting like the United Nations. I mean, they all run to Israel when she gets hit, and then they go and they criticize her when she hits back. I mean, it is either you support a friend or you don't. You don't support a friend with conditions. You don't support a friend and tell them what to do. That's not being a friend. What you had was the worst event that has happened since the Holocaust. And the idea that they beheaded those people and burned those babies alive and raped those girls and dragged their naked bodies through the streets of Gaza, saying death to Israel, death to America. Why Biden doesn't see this as personal? 
33 Americans were butchered on that day. We have American hostages, and you're going to go and sit there and give cover to the terrorists? What happened to America? At what point do we not help our best friend who was brought to her knees fight to get rid of the evil that's in this world? Because guess what? That evil is coming to us next. Israel's always been the tip of the spear when it comes to defeating terrorism. It's never been that Israel needs America. It has always been that America needs Israel. And it's a shame because Biden has gotten it wrong with Afghanistan. He's gotten it wrong with Ukraine. He's now getting it wrong with Israel. And that is the reason the world is on fire. And the one worry I have when people say what keeps me up at night, it's what happens between now and Election Day. Uh, Governor Sununu, you are an alum of MIT, as is your brother and your father, I believe. What do the Sununus think about the MIT president's performance last week with Elise Stefanik and the rest of the members of that committee? She's got to quit immediately. It's embarrassing. It's, it's absolutely embarrassing. And, and I look, I think what Elise did was, was spot on because it wasn't cruel. She was just trying to ask a simple question with a, a very simple answer. And whether you're President Gay over at, at Harvard or the president of MIT. Um, and, and by the way, these aren't just these three. There are presidents of universities all over this country that would have answered those questions wrongly the same way, that uh, basically are trying to protect those who want to incite violence, incite hatred um, uh, against uh, you know, Jewish, Jewish kids, Jewish students, not protect them. Um, I mean, it's pure anti-Semitism. The, these folks are, aren't calling for – this isn't some regional dispute here, Hugh. These folks are calling for wiping out every Jew on the planet. And you have students uh, you know, supporting that. You know, and by the way, a ceasefire is not peace. A ce- these kids stand up and say, well, let's just have a ceasefire. A ceasefire allows, uh, does one thing. It just allows Hamas to regroup. Do you think they're going to go back into their, into their tunnels and say, gee, I guess we should give up? Now, no, it's just allowing them to regroup and put the bigger threat on Israel and the United States. So Ambassador Haley, I, I asked. Presidents of universities, they all got to go. It's embarrassing. MIT is embarrassing. Uh, the students, the parents of those students should be embarrassed. And just to say it is one thing. Folks, I think folks are going to start, uh, so, so to say, voting with their feet, right? These are Ivy Leagues, but there's more and more students that are saying maybe there's other options out there. Maybe this elitism of the Ivy Leagues, while they try to stand on the shoulders, tell the rest of the world how to live their lives, support this kind of hatred, so stand on the shoulders of the Americans that built this country, right? That's exactly what's happening. That's the elitism that folks are so frustrated with across this country. Um, that, that's got to end. And, uh, and, and I hope there's some accountability and the boards just kick them out. Uh, It's not going to happen at Harvard, my alma mater. Uh, Ambassador Haley, Penny Pritzker, the former Obama Secretary of the Commerce Department, is the chairman of the Harvard Corporation. They've made clear they're standing by President Gay. If you are president of the United States, will you sign a version of the Solemn Amendment that cuts off funding for universities that do not punish immediately anti-Semitic behavior that threatens Jewish students? Absolutely. I mean, we need to get rid of their tax-exempt status if they are not going to protect students. If this had been the KKK, everybody would be up at arms. This is just as awful. Not only that, I'll take it a step further. Biden was wrong not to include anti-Zionism in the description of in the definition of anti-Semitism. Anyone who thinks that Israel doesn't have a right to exist, anyone that thinks that the genocide of Jews is okay, that's anti-Semitic. And so we've got to start hitting these universities. They used to be the pinnacle of what it meant to be a good, responsible citizen. What happened at that hearing was embarrassing. And if we don't show some real accountability, this will continue. We've got to put an end to it. I want to close by talking about Portsmouth Naval Base. I asked about the Navy in our debate, Ambassador Haley, but I'll start with Governor Sununu. Has any expansion money flowed to the Portsmouth Naval Station where we repair our Los Angeles attack submarines in the massive amount of money that Joe Biden's spent? Did they do anything to repair and upgrade and expand that facility? No, look, we're, I, I, the, with the way Joe Biden and this administration treats the military, we're grateful that they haven't shut, shut the thing down yet because it is such a, a vital piece to our, to our military infrastructure and being able to repair uh, you know, naval subs. But no, I mean, it, there's a huge opportunity here. Uh, the ambassadors talked about this a lot in terms of where our military is compared to the very growing and threatening military of China where they're making investments. Uh, our, our, this administration uh, treats the military as an afterthought without realizing that, again, you know, the, through the strength of America's military, 
comes world peace. Through the strength of America's military comes resolve that the rest of our allies can count on and our enemies will fear. But no, we haven't seen anything uh, of any significance here. Ambassador Haley, if you are the president, what will you do vis-a-vis the Navy and in particular our underwater forces? Because the next conflict with China is going to be primarily fought in cyber and in underwater domains. And we haven't got facilities to even repair the uh, submarines we have, much less build new ones. Well, it's like I told you before. The first thing is you got to clean the Department of Defense. We've got to pull out all the bureaucracy and red tape. We've got to get them mission focused. They've got to stop doing things like gender pronoun classes and all these other missions that have nothing to do with protecting American soldiers and making sure that threats abroad know that we're strong and we're ready for any threat that comes our way. That hasn't happened. You know, when it comes to the subs, America's always been strong, but China's moving at a fast pace. And we've got to start looking at the future, not the past. We've got generals right now that want to look back at old wars. And the new threats that are facing us are cyber, artificial intelligence, and space. They're hypersonic missiles. We're, we've barely gotten started on that. We've got to make sure our submarines, our ships, everything is modernized. Our equipment. I mean, our military just got the first modernized you know, machine gun in decades. Like, how does that happen? We have to start making sure that we're modernizing that agency. And so, but you can't do anything without cleaning it up. And then the second thing is getting it mission focused on what we need to replace, what we need to build up, and how we need to make sure that we're going to be strong and quickly. Now, Madam Ambassador, last question is the one that got cut from the NBC Salem debate. It was going to go to me, but we ran out of time. And that happens. It wasn't uh, any kind of a, a conspiracy. We just ran out of time. We have a military recruitment crisis. The Army, the Navy, and the Air Force all missed their totals by a lot. Marine Corps made theirs, Space Force made theirs, but the other big three did not make theirs. You have the husband on active duty, and so you were going to get the question first, and I regret that we ran out of time. Why is the United States having this military recruitment crisis, and how do we fix it? Fascinating. We Our recruitment is down 25%, and the reason is, and this is, This is shocking. 80% of our new recruits that come into the military come from military families. And for the first time, we are seeing military parents and grandparents tell their kids, don't do it. Think how appalling that is. Why are they telling them, don't do it? Because they don't believe that America will have the military's back. They don't like the fact that they're doing gender pronoun classes, that they're doing all of these other things. And more than that, Hugh, look at how we treat our veterans. That's the number one thing. You look at how we treat our veterans and the fact that we have over 33,000 veterans that are homeless, one in three suffering from PTSD and thoughts of suicide. We lose 22 heroes a day to suicide. If a veteran needs a doctor's appointment, on average, it takes 29 days. Why? Because on the 30th day, they can go to the doctor or hospital of their choice. So midway through the 29 days, they get a call to reschedule and the clock starts all over again. When I become president, we will be proud of our military, but we won't say it with words. We'll do it with actions. We will focus on their transition so that it's longer than two weeks when they come stateside and make sure we watch out for them for the rest of their life. We will make sure we have telehealth so they can have the mental health care they need right when they need it. And they should be able to go to the doctor or hospital of their choice. And quite honestly, I think the way we take care of veterans is I think every member of Congress should have to get their health care from the VA. And you watch how all of a sudden that gets turned around. We have got to take care of those who are willing to sacrifice for us. If we don't, God help us. Governor Sununu, there are a lot of veterans in New Hampshire. I saw them at every town hall I went to. Uh, Are they going to support Nikki Haley? Oh, without a doubt. Look, I mean, she's gotten one of her first early endorsers was General Don Bolduc. And while General Bolduc and I might have have had disagreements on on things in the past, he's just he's recognized as a leader in the military, especially here in New Hampshire. And he works with with her with uh, doing everything he can from the VFWs to the VA to our new state. Um, you know, veteran support programs, or issues around mental health, the opioid crisis. These are the things that these folks come back with, and they're not supported by this government. They don't have the resources to have that secondary support. And, and Ambassador Haley talks about it all the time. You know, when you sign up, you're a soldier for life, and that's a responsibility we take on. We have to protect them and provide services for them because they've earned it. They've risked their lives and earned the right to not be homeless. I mean, the fact that we even have to talk about 
a homeless veteran or, or uh, a veteran that goes without mental um, uh, mental health uh, services. It, it's just it's appalling, it, but it can be fixed. And what who better to have in the White House? Right. Then the, the wife of a service member who's out there standing a post, a military family who is getting it and living it day to day. Uh, I mean, I think you're going to see an overwhelming number of veterans across New Hampshire. Uh, really look at this race in the next couple couple weeks. Come over for Nikki Haley and, and bring bring home a huge win on January 23rd. Governor Chris Sununu, thank you. Ambassador Haley, what's your website? NikkiHaley.com. Join us. We're getting the momentum. We're going to win the fight. And we look forward to make getting America back in, on track again. Thank you, Madam Ambassador. Thank you, Governor Sununu. Always good to talk to you both. Thank you for joining me on the Hugh Hewitt Show. I'm Hugh Hewitt live from Studio West. Coming up next hour, Ambassador Nikki Haley and Governor Chris Sununu join me as the latter endorsed the former yesterday, and they're on the road somewhere. Right now, I start with Noah Rothman. Good morning, Noah. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, Hugh. Thanks now, for No, I, I don't know yet whether I should introduce you as an editor at the National Review, a contributor to commentary, the guy with the beard who shows up once a week. How do I introduce you? I'm a senior writer with National Review. Senior writer with commentary. But you do do stuff at commentary, right? I mean, I, I wrote for them for the last issue. I uh, speak with John on a pretty regular basis, and I listen to the podcast like everybody else. I listen. To, I think basis. the podcast is uh, Dan Senor's Call Me Back and Commentary, the only two things I listen to every day, except the Times of Israel, which is only a 20-minute update. How, don't you think the commentary podcast is funny as hell? I do. I was a part of it for a long time. It was one of the things that I lobbied for very hard when I went on uh, on board in 2015. And uh, it's kicking on all cylinders these days. I do what, miss the what gang. What time but, uh, do they, they take that? What, what time do they actually oh, do that? that varies. Okay. Well, I'm so out of the loop, I couldn't tell you. But sometimes See, it was early, early morning, like 7 o'clock in the morning. Sometimes it was the night before. Usually it was around 8. They 8 need to have a couple of things. First of all, they need a, they need a lower third for Yiddish. <laughs> Because a lot of the Yiddish, I have no idea what it means. Do you understand the Yiddish? No, I do not. Uh, my not. grandma would. Yeah, but, but no, you, I'm taking a wild guess here that you're Jewish. Am I right, Noah Rothman? So, no, actually. Um, my mom's Irish Catholic, so I don't count. Um, you, no, you my don't. Father was, uh, my father's side is Jewish. My father's side was Jewish, but they were agnostic. Upper West Siders didn't, you know, didn't go to a shul, so I didn't really marinate in that part of my life. Uh, until later on, uh, because when you're a minority, you know, of any kind, that's what the high school kids focus on. So I was made very clear early on in my life that whether, whether it doesn't matter what your religion is, your name is Noah Rothman. This is what people are going to identify with you. So you might as well marinate in it pretty quickly. My kids go to a JCC or they went to a JCC. I went to commentary. I gravitated towards that part of my life. But it wasn't part of my life early on. That's so interesting. Now, fetching Mrs. Hewitt technically can make Alia because her grandfather was Jewish, but I can't go with her. If I understand the rules, I don't get to go with her. But that means I have a very limited appreciation for Yiddish. So would you please, I haven't talked to Jay Bot in a while. I did tell him on his, on his advice, I watched Gen V one episode and I'm scarred, scarred for life. And so he's withdrawn his recommendation, realizing that People above 50 should never watch Gen V or they'll be scarred. Honestly, I'm staring at the ceiling. Have you watched uh, that thing? I haven't, but on John's recommendation or an anti-recommendation, I suppose I shouldn't. No. But it seems like you should just have the commentary guys on here, Hugh. You want to talk about the commentary guys? No, I want to <laughs> yeah, talk to you. I, I was going to, but my assumption was <laughs> wrong. I thought you were an American Jew, but you're not. So I'm just going to talk to you as a non-identifying, but to- identified as an American Jew. Three things happen, and I want to ask you about all three. Joe Biden went out to the salamander on Monday and he gave his typical meandering series of disconnected utterances, one of which was Israel's engaged in this indiscriminate bombing. Number two, the State Department yesterday announced that they're embargoing the sale of 27,000 rifles to the Israeli police because they might end up in the hands of West Bank extremists. Number three, last night, White House staff held a vigil at which they were all massed in front of the White House around candles spelling out ceasefire. What do you take all those three things to mean, Noah? Yeah, so I'm going to write on this this morning, I think. Uh, and John Kirby's briefing yesterday was really illustrative of, uh, illustrative rather, of the disconnect in this administration. Um, the tra- he, as you said, the M16s that they're trying to withhold is strikes me as something as a face-saving measure, because what we're talking about here is a law enforcement problem internally within Israeli politics. 
which I understand why they would want to exert pressure on that. But it's not something that would in, uh, interfere with our support for a war effort in, say, Ukraine. There's law enforcement issues that vex the United States and the State Department in Ukraine, but that doesn't affect the platforms or the weapons that we provide the Ukrainian government. They're going after the uh, uh, the Israeli government now for using unguided munitions sometimes in this conflict, as though unguided munitions are not part of the arsenal in every, uh, every military on Earth, including ours, which we use when they're appropriate, because they are sometimes tactically and operationally important. The indiscriminate bombing claim is dubious, given John Kirby's contention that the United States has leaned on Israel to back off what would be strategically valuable uh, efforts on its part to, to minimize its exposure, the exposure of IDF soldiers. They've not done that, exposed their soldiers on our our request. And what it really boils down to, I think, is, is something that Kamala Harris said. It's in Politico this morning. You should check it out, where she's saying, listen, the White House just needs to be more sympathetic towards Palestinians. So all I can really gather here is there's a profound interest in the administration to make it to do things that make it feel less icky supporting Israel. That's it. They just feel a little gross supporting Israel. And they want these gestures that make them that alleviate the weight on their conscience when they have to go into the, you know, meet their friends and go to Christmas parties and go to restaurants with their progressive allies who are all dis discomfited with the conduct of this war, uh, because it doesn't make a lot of sense. The dots don't connect otherwise, absent this social pressure. Now, Noah, you, you've been practicing journalism inside the Beltway for a long time. I've run away for three months because it's too cold there. Uh, do you think any journalist might be able to discover who the State Department official is who embargoed the rifles or whom the White House staffers are there in the pro-Hamas wing of the Biden administration? Because I think what you're seeing, this ickiness, it, it reflects a fact that there is nobody home in the upstairs at the uh, at the residence at the White House. I, I don't think the president is running anything. And therefore, people are, are just freelancing left, right and said they're just doing whatever they want. I mean, can you imagine the Trump staff going out in front of the White House and taking a position contrary to the announced position of the Trump White House? I mean, sometimes there were, you know, occasional leakers who were vaunted as the celebrated figures who were, you know, bucking, bucking the, the pressure. Oh, we're, not the gonna the we're not going to count the Vindman. We're not going to count the Vindman brothers. <laughs> But this this White House, I've never seen a White House that is so poorly served by its own staff. They leak behind the president's back. They undermine his position, sometimes in public. Uh, they have a, you know, a revolt of interns. This is the lowest hanging fruit imaginable. Can you imagine if your interns were coming out against your stated position, how easy it would be to clear house? Clear house yes. without a without a, a, a bead of sweat dripping down your forehead. Collective punishment for the interns. You feel great about it. The interns are out on the street. How, oh, yeah. What do we do about the interns revolt? How, how will we ever recover our reputation? The idea here that you have these staffers, outright mutinous staffers, who think they have some influence over policy. They really do. They seem to think that these displays will change the trajectory of American foreign policy, like you can turn a tanker around that fast. It's shocking, and it's really abhorrent how the delusions of grandeur to which they have succumbed. And, yeah, there's only one way to reimpose the, the, our shared vision of reality on these people, and that's to ca collect some scalps, take some names. Well, that, but the journalists, Noah, the revolt. I can't really blame the journalists for leaving because I left. But I, I just want, did they all leave? Is there no one at the State Department to give me a name for Somebody said, don't sell the rifles. Somebody made a decision. There are 27,000 rifles that are supposed to go to the Israeli police. I assume they're useful. They're not going. Somebody did that. Is there no way to figure out who's responsible for that? Well, Hugh, you and I both know that if the press wanted a name, they'd get it. If they disagreed with this policy outcome, they'd pursue it. They'd track it down. It wouldn't be hard. But they don't want to. They agree. It's they an want this kind of slow to a crawl. But this is an official action. This isn't a demonstration. All right. So maybe they kept their their scarves on and they got back inside the old executive office building. They disrobed, turned into Superman and left by the 17th Street exit. Maybe no one saw him. It's possible. No one could tell who was leaving. But somebody has to tell Congress, no, we're not sending the rifles. And we don't know that. I just what I'm pointing out, Noah, is that the, the journalists in Washington are wholly co-opted by this administration. They, they are not being journalists. 
They are being cheerleaders. But interestingly, not the president. Administration, yes, but elements within the administration, something akin to a, I don't want to you know, necessarily say it, but a deep state yeah. that is opposed to the policies of this administration. And this is not something that is a controversial statement. When Condoleezza Rice assumed control over the State Department, when Colin Powell assumed control over the State Department, they faced an internal revolt because they didn't like the Bush administration's policies. And they assumed that they could derail them by uh, just, you know, dragging their feet, being lethargic or outright opposing them through, uh, you know, blind quotes to the press. Uh, And there is a way to deal with that. And it is to subordinate these officials whom you know are not on your side to uh, make examples of maybe one or two. You can reimpose discipline if you're interested in it. There's no interest in submitting. No, you've kibitzed. Uh, you and I were kibitzing too much. That's a little bit of Yiddish that I know. At the start of this, so I didn't get to ask you about um, Nikki Haley and Christian Nunu who are coming up next hour. So if you can stick around for another segment, I would like you to. Can you do that? Sure. Noah C. Rothman on X. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, Studio West. Noah Rothman, senior writer at National Review, joins me. He is not Jewish. We've established that, but he is Roman Catholic. Do you go to mass, Noah? I'm not Roman Catholic either. I'm very secular. My mom's Irish Catholic. My dad's Jewish, raised agnostic. I'm nothing. I'm, I'm just pro, I'm pro-religion. I'm secular, philo-Semitic, philo-Catholic, whatever you want to say. You are a target. Opus Day is going to come knock at your door. Okay, no, no. Let me talk to you a little bit about Nikki Haley, uh, the, the former governor of South Carolina, ambassador to the UN, is joining me next hour, along with Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire, to talk about the latter's endorsement of the former. Does that matter? It might. I, I'm not sure, just because we got a recent poll out of uh, Iowa that suggests neither Kim Reynolds' endorsement nor Bob Vanderplatt's endorsement of uh, Ron DeSantis has had much of an effect on his standing in the race. So I'm skeptical that endorsements matter at all. If it does, then it will matter uh, among the voters that Nikki Haley needs. Uh, 2020 was a long time ago, but Chris Sununu won re-election handily by nearly 30 points, I think. And when he did one, it was 2020, it was a while ago, but he won 21% of Democrats. He won 65% of independents, all of whom can vote in, an, in a Republican primary. Now, that's not a great narrative for Nikki Haley if she wins or competes in New Hampshire handily on the back of the support of non-Republican voters. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Those are delegates. That demonstrates momentum. And that's a momentum Nikki Haley will need going into her home state of South Carolina. And she needs a great showing in South Carolina to continue to perform into Super Tuesday. So I'm not I'm not closing the book on 2024. It is prohibitively Uh, Donald Trump is a prohibitive favorite at this point to be the nominee of the Republican Party. The only way I see that not happening is if Ron DeSantis either wins or doesn't win and gets out. And if Chris Christie gets out, the former governor of New Jersey told me on Monday on this show, he is 100 percent not getting out. Can Nikki Haley win New Hampshire with Chris Christie in the race? That's the $4 million question, isn't it? Uh, I wish I knew the answer to that. It's hard to see. If he continues to pull where he's polling now at around 10 to 14, 15%, I find it hard to see. I think it's unlikely because those are votes that Nikki Haley absolutely needs. And if if Chris Christie were to get out, probably two-thirds of those votes, if not more, would go in uh, Nikki Haley's direction. So right now they're tied up. They're locked up with a candidate who's running a one-state campaign, roughly. I think he probably thinks he can compete in New Hampshire and Super or Michigan, rather, in Super Tuesday, where it's a very similar dynamic. Independents and Democrats can vote in that race. But that's his strategy, and it's, it's, it's not a strategy to win the White House. So if he's running as a message candidate, message received, mission accomplished, there's nowhere else for you to go. So my last question you know, Rothman, what would you ask Nikki Haley and Chris Sununu next hour? That's a great question. I would ask them um, if Nikki Haley is a conservative. Why, why is she a conservative? Why does she believe in conservative values? Why does she believe conservative governance is, uh, the, is in a, a valuable and superior method of social organization to progressive governance, to democratic governance? I want her to make an appeal to me as a conservative for why her administration would get done what we want to see done, why the institutions need to be reformed. How would she reform the institutions? The, the knock on her from the DeSantis camp and others is that she's a mere caretaker. No, that she is a ridiculously substantive question for a, a world of journalism that is focused exclusively on horse race issues. 
true, but but it's what I want to hear because Ron DeSantis's appeal and it's appeal that I share. I think he's appealing on this in this sense that he uh, can convincingly has demonstrated convincingly as governor that he can take on entrenched bureaucracies dismantle them, reform them, make them responsive to the will of the voters. I want to see that. But I don't think Ron DeSantis is necessarily the vehicle for that kind of reform. How will Nikki Haley be that vehicle? Is she interested in that mission? What bureaucracies, entrenched bureaucracies, interest groups, what have you, that have a stranglehold over American policy, foreign and domestic, will she reform how and why? Uh, Those are things I'd like to hear from Nikki Haley. You know, I'm going to treat you like a town hall participant. I'm going to go to the video. We have a video question for you, uh, Ambassador Haley, from Noah Rothman, senior writer who's not Jewish nor Catholic, but is Philo everything uh, from Washington, D.C. Do you mind if I do that? Uh, Not at all. All right, Noah, your question is coming up next hour. Be well, my friend. Thank you for staying over because I've got a list of questions, but that one wasn't on it because I was doing the ridiculous horse race stuff. But that's that's pretty smart. Noah Rothman, senior writer at National Review. Follow him. At Noah C. Rothman on X. Dr. Michael Lauren, and former ambassador to the United States, to, uh, from, from Israel to the United States, joins me next live from, I think he's in Tel Aviv. We'll find out. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, joined now by Israel's ambassador to the United States. He used to be Israel's ambassador to the United States. He used to be deputy minister in the previous Netanyahu government. Michael Lauren is back in Israel. Good morning, Dr. Warren. Thank you for being patient. I want to ask you about three things. On Monday, President Biden at a fundraiser accused Israel of indiscriminate bombing. On Tuesday, the uh, uh, states of uh, the Israel suffered its worst loss yet in the war in one day. Ten warriors dead in a booby-trapped house. And then yesterday, two things happened. The State Department embargoed the sale of 27,000 rifles to the Israeli police, citing West Bank settler extremism. And there was a demonstration outside of the White House by a bunch of White House staffers calling for a ceasefire. How do you interpret all of these events? <laughs> politics. Politics, a lot of internal politics. Um, <laughs> you know, but there's no secret that Trump has been paying a, a political price for his support for Israel. Um, but the, the notion that Israel is bombing indiscriminately basically became a, a leitmotif in the in the administration's uh, pronouncements on the conflict before Israel actually started bombing. Um, I, I've written a piece for the American press, let's see if uh, someone will publish it out there, that actually charts this process. It starts with uh, the, the president's re- really, truly historic speech on October 10th, which touched us all deeply. But in that, uh, he also mentioned that, he, that the United States expects Israel to act lawfully uh, in responding to Hamas terror. A couple of days later, Tony Blinken came to Israel and he said, uh, you know, Israel has to act in accordance with the law. Now, the subtext of this is that Israel doesn't act in accordance with the law. And, uh, and already, okay, but then that expectation that Israel wouldn't act, wouldn't necessarily act in accordance with the law became Israel is not acting in accordance with the law. And that was in some of the more recent pronouncements, both by Secretary of State Blinken, who said entirely too many Palestinians are being uh, killed, which begs the question, a rather cruel question, what would be an acceptable number of Palestinians getting killed? And two, um, uh, Kamala Harris basically saying, you know, Israel is killing these people wantonly. Uh, and then you had the, the president's remark yesterday. Now, a, there's a good cop, bad cop thing going on here, Hugh, uh, where you have John Kirby at the National Security Council. You have Matt Miller at the State Department coming out and saying, listen, Israelis are really acting uh, with great restraint. We, we would kill far more civilians if we were in the Israelis' place. And then you have these pronouncements, and um, they are harmful. They're very harmful. They're, they actually contribute to, um, to generating the same Security Council resolutions that the United States then turns around and vetoes. Okay? Basically, those resolutions are saying we are bombing indiscriminately. Um, so I, I attribute this all to internal politics, that uh, this is a way of somehow appeasing that progressive wing um, as a as an American journalist said to me last week, it's not about Gaza anymore for the White House. It's about Michigan, and um, and that's where it comes from. Um, so, Doctor Oren, for the record, I, I want people to understand it's yes. harmful. If it was just politics, I wouldn't care. I really wouldn't. No, They've got someone, but it does feed a propaganda narrative that is being used by the Hamas forces and those allied with Hamas, including yeah. the PLA to injure Israel's international reputation and to power idiots and things like TikTok and the idea that Israeli uh, forces are wantonly killing people. 
if if the IDF had had known the the that the home was booby trapped, it killed ten of your best, as the president of Israel said yesterday, including a colonel leading from the front. They would have indiscriminately bombed that house, but they're not. They're doing everything but indiscriminately bombing. So I think it's greatly detrimental to have these narratives out there. It's hard. It's hurtful. It's hurtful. I'm sorry. It's harmful and it's hurtful. It's deeply hurtful. If we wanted to bomb uh, Gaza indiscriminately, we'd bomb it indiscriminately and we'd save all of our soldiers' lives. Why send these soldiers in house after house and risk their lives? We could just we could flatten the place. And uh, and so it, it's insulting. It's hurtful to us. And yes, it's harmful. And it's creating a process of delegitimization that could lead to an imposed ceasefire. And a ceasefire means Hamas wins. It gets away with mass murder. So it, it is it, that, that line of reasoning. This is why I felt compelled to write that op ed. Um, let's see if the, the Washington Post will publish it now, uh, where I stress this, that we, you know, we're thankful for what the president has done for us, that he stuck his neck out. Uh, in many ways, he's blocking this ceasefire, but they they simply have to stop this rhetoric of accusing us basically of war crimes. What, what, what's going, the subtext is you Israelis are liars and you Israelis are murderers. And <laughs> can imagine how harmful that is. Now, at the same time, they are not paying attention to. I've got a Washington Post column on the landing page right now, Michael, that says, hey, I read what the National mm-hmm. Security in, in, uh, Advisor in Israel said two days ago. And he said, Hezbollah, if you don't move back 30 clicks, we're going to war. I mean, it was this very blunt. And then Benny Gantz told Tony Blinken that. That hasn't shown up anywhere in the American media. And and Hezbollah continues to attack Israel every day. Am I right about that? There's, there's no way we're not going to have to deal with Hezbollah at some point. I, I've said in this program earlier that uh, at the outset of this war, I was in favor of freezing Gaza. Uh, freezing the situation in Gaza, pounding Hamas in its tunnels day and night, but focusing the major thrust uh, of our military effort at Hezbollah, which is roughly 15 times uh, a greater threat than Hamas is at 150,000 rockets, many of them long range, many of them very accurate, uh, 100,000 terrorists under arms uh, who have spent the last uh, decade massacring Syrians. Imagine what they'll do to us. So um, eventually we can't tell the, the people who live up in the north in the upper galley to go home. It won't. The, the upper part of the country will, will simply become uninhabitable. And Hezbollah has fired at us every single day. Um, we certainly have the causeless belly. Uh, and we're going to have to deal, deal with it, irrespective of what uh, the United States says. Clearly, the United States does not want uh, us to engage with Hezbollah uh, ever. I don't know at this time. Uh, I just want to say one other thing about what we were talking about earlier, about the, 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 uh, the civilian to fighter ratio. This is another thing. You know, Hamas is putting out these numbers about 17,000, 18,000 Palestinians killed. That number includes the number of terrorists killed. Israel says it has killed at least 7,000 terrorists. Do the math. That number does not include the Palestinians who have been killed by Palestinian rockets, 30, 30% of which fall short onto Palestinian neighborhoods. So you can take off many other thousands from that and the fact that Hamas always grossly inflates its numbers. And what you're left with is precisely what the Israeli army has said, that the ratio of civilian deaths to, to combat deaths, that is terrorist deaths, is two to one, which, um, which as, as cruel as it sounds, is a lot better than the four to one that the United States registered both in Iraq and Afghanistan, and even in the NATO, NATO bombing of, of Bosnia in 1999, about four to one. Um, and so within the realm of modern warfare, uh, Israel, I think, uh, is performing very, very admirably. It sets the standard. I want people to understand it sets the standard. Now I want to talk about those rifles. And and I have seen West Bank extremist violence covered best in the Times of Israel. I know it has happened, but I don't know a quantity. And I want a quantity because I think what's happening here is a conflation between so-called West Bank extremist violence and 10-7. And there is nothing. They're not on the same spectrum. They're not in the same universe. But would you quantify what it is by West Bank extremism? What does West Bank extremism mean when you read it? What does Michael Oren think of? Well, there are two aspects of this. One is it is a small group of very radical uh, West Bank, what you call Judean Samaras settlers, uh, Israeli uh, Israeli citizens, most of them very young. We call them the hilltop boys, live up on hilltops uh, where they settle illegally without permission of the Israeli government. Uh, and they uh, they have been very violent. They have. They've uh, 
They've terrorized Palestinian villages and burnt uh, olive groves and actually physically attacked uh, Palestinians. Um, Israel should do the utmost to, to restrain them, to arrest them if they have to, um, certainly, because they cause a strategic damage. Just the fact that they're bad, they're bad in and of themselves, but they also cause a strategic damage. They're a diversion uh, from, our co- from our goal of preserving our country in an existential war with Hamas uh, in Gaza and certainly with Hezbollah in the north. Uh, we need, don't need this. The decision by the administration, though, to stop the, the, the provision of rifles uh, to the police who operate in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, is to me, again, purely politics. Well, you know what? It resonates. It reminds me of, oh, there's some sort of air gun running around from 1946 that is importing weapons from Czechoslovakia to fight against the mandatory police. It's so stupid because these rifles, it's like saying we're not going to arm the Chicago police because they're going to end up in the gang's hand. It's not even remotely possible. No, it's not the best of decisions, i got to tell you. This is my daughter-in-law is a police officer. And uh, and then she's, she's terrific. Wonderful. You know, they're not going to give her a rifle because some kid on a, on a hilltop is breaking the law. Um, to me, that it, it's not defensible. So, Michael, how many kids are on the hilltop? This is one of the things that just drives me crazy about State Department reporting when they use West Bank extremists. I've seen that a couple of houses were vandalized and some Palestinians left their village because they were afraid. That's I, I don't know if it's five, is it 50, but it isn't big and it's got nothing. No one's been murdered. As far as I can tell, no one's been murdered. Well, there have been cases of murder in the past, but it, it's not thousands, it's hundreds. And uh, these are these are young people who have fallen out of all sorts of you know, frameworks. Uh, many of them, some of them are troubled. Um, the big problem is that their defenders are actually in the Israeli government. It's this Smutrich and Ben-Gvir uh, ministers who, who represent them. I think that is that is compounded and complicated the issue uh, in our relationship with the Biden administration, the presence of these ministers uh, who will who will defend the Hilltop boys. Um, they'll defend them. So that 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 is indeed problematic. And there's no way of sort of sugarcoating that. No, that in fact, that comes up in everything. They talk about Ben Gavir and Smotrick all the time. There are two votes, but they do make up necessary votes for the coalition minus Gantz and his party. Correct. And they control uh, crucial ministries. So Smutrich is the, is the treasury ministry, controls the purse strings of the country, and Benvir controls the police and the internal security. So where the two meet, right there on those hilltops. Now, I, I thought, though, Ben Gavir had been denied actual operational authority over the police, Michael Oren. Uh, no, he, actual minister is not supposed to have. Uh, operational authority over the police. The police are supposed to have operational authority over the police. Um, but you know, he keeps trying. He keeps trying, certainly. Is there is there then an argument that those rifles could end up in the hands of the extremists? They could. But the extremists can get rifles in many other places, too. Uh, they don't have to get the other from the United States. But the fact of the matter is you have to balance the fact that the danger of maybe some maybe some of these rifles ending up in the hands of these hilltop people but against the danger of no rifles uh, arriving in the hands of the Israeli police. And the Israeli police have their hands full right now. We are fighting on multiple fronts. Okay, We are fighting on every front imaginable against Hezbollah, against the Houthis in the south, uh, against potentially Shiite militias in, in uh, eastern, in western Iraq, against Hamas, against Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Uh, should I go on? All right. And everything going on in, in Judean territory. Um, well, it is my belief that this will not go, that the uh, the Hamas wing of the Democratic Party is so small that when people begin to focus on it, it's going to vanish. Dr. Michael Oren, follow him on X, the site formerly known as Twitter. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Former United States Senator Jim Talent joins me now. Follow him on X at Jim Talent. Good morning, Senator. How are you? Doing well, you. Yesterday, the State Department, an unnamed official, announced that they are embargoing the sale to Israel of 27,000 rifles destined for the Israeli police on the fear that they might end up in the hands of West Bank extremists. No names were attached. A, who made that decision, do you think? And B, ought we to know the name and ought we to know, have that person in front of the House testifying as to that action? Well, if assuming that the administration is functioning in a semi-normal way, that decision would not have been made on an issue as visible as this without clearance from the highest level of the State Department, at least. 
And um, I would also add, without the knowledge and approval of the White House itself. Now, in this case, when we have White House interns, um, you know, you got to laugh or cry about this. You, we have White House interns publicly opposing the administration's policy. It's it's a little hard to be as certain of that as one would normally be. But but I would have normally expect that this would have been approved by Blinken at least, with the knowledge of Jake Sullivan. Now. What do you make of this decision? I think it's the stupidest thing in the world. Michael Oren, the former Israeli ambassador to the United States, said it's just politics for domestic consumption. They're trying to show that they they understand the Palestinians are suffering. So they're amplifying the threat of these extremists. And those there are extremists, but these weapons aren't going to the extremists. As Oren said, the Israeli police have their hands full right now. Yeah, I think uh, Ambassador Oren, who's always great, by the way, I love it that you have him on the show. Uh, I think he's basically correct. They're responding to what they see as a political imperative and trying to send out contradictory. Well, they are sending out contradictory messages about their Israeli policy to try and satisfy both camps in their base. Now, they get away with it in the short term because they're not held accountable by that part of the press they care about. But they're not getting away with it in the longer term, which is one of the reasons the president's numbers are dropping even further, because the, the people in the, in, in the Democratic base who don't want us to support Israel have figured out that the administration is basically supporting Israel or a whole lot more than they want to. But, yeah, I agree. I think it's basically uh, politics and probably a degree of panic as they look at his numbers go down. Now, Senator, what do you think the public response is when on Monday the president gives a very rambling speech to donors at the Salamander Resort and he just throws in there Joe Biden style and Israel's got to stop the indiscriminate bombing? They're not doing indiscriminate bombing. And then yesterday, Admiral Kirby gets up and says in the press room, because he's a pretty smart guy, Israel is fighting with more restraint than even the United States does, with more concern for civilians than even the United States exercise. In other words, they're complying with the laws of armed conflict. Doesn't doesn't the country realize that's cognitive dissonance on display? Yeah, again, and I, the, the country does realize that, which, again, you, is the reason, one of the reasons for the president's low poll numbers. I mean, they see the incoherence of this. Uh, I agree, and I agree with what Dr. Warren said. I mean, the two countries that, that fight with the greatest respect for the technical rules of combat are Israel and the United States. I mean, to accuse Israel of indiscriminate bombing is the exact opposite of the truth. It's it's Israel's enemies that engage in, in, in indiscriminate bombing. I mean, just look at Bashar Assad and what he's done in Syria. I mean, he uses poison gas on his own civilians. And the so Russians use barrel a, bombs. The Russians use barrel oh, bombs. Absolutely. I mean, this, it's, this is gaslighting. On, on the biggest level. And again, in the short term, they can get away with it because they're, and you know more about this than I do, this is your world, but they're not held accountable by the me- part of the media they care about, not seriously accountable, but the American people do see through it. And that includes people on the left. I mean, they can see what's happening. Well, last night there was a candlelight vigil in front of the White House with alleged close quote, or quote, air quotes, White House staffers uh, calling for a ceasefire. Is there any way that the Biden senior staff does not know who those people are? Well, they have to know who most of them are. I mean, I suppose somebody could sneak out there and sneak back, but they got to have a pretty good idea. You know the security around the White House. So, I mean, they can, I mean, they can find out very, very quickly. Yeah, there is no door. There is no secret tunnel. It's not Hogwarts. There isn't a room that you can go into that puts you in front of the White House that you can come back in with an invisibility cloak. So, so Senator, last we got right. a minute. Would you fire all those people because they're undermining your policy? Yeah, they're young people. I would probably what I would probably do is call them in and say, "Look, if you have such a crisis of conscience working for this administration, you really shouldn't be here." In other words. Don't support an administration that you feel compelled with, with your hours during the day that you feel compelled to go out and demonstrate against. I mean, they, they ought to, these are young people and they ought to. Yes. The answer to the question is, yes, I would let them go, but I would try and use it as a teachable moment. I might also suggest to them 
that they're so young, maybe they don't know everything they don't know. Yeah, words, I would do a pop quiz really first. Are... I'd actually do a pop quiz yeah. on Israeli history. When did the temple get destroyed? Within a hundred years. <laughs> yes, I, I wouldn't make it hard, but I grade on the curve. You know what? They'd all flunk. Jim Talent on Twitter is the easiest X file to actually follow. It's Jim Talent. That's all it is on X. Jim Talent with the bipartisan policy center. Always a value. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Standing by for John Strage. John is one of the most successful sports writers in America. He joins me now. Hey, John. Good morning. Good morning, Hugh. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I love this book, The Beginning. I've got it in my hand. I just put it out on Google. I mean, on Twitter, X, whatever. And I think it's a fabulous distillation of your writing about sports and about Christianity over many years. But let's tell people, you were a sports writer before you became a writer about Christianity and sports, correct? That is correct. Yeah. Uh, got into sports journalism in high school, actually, for the Whittier Daily News. And then Los Angeles Times, Orange County Register, and since 1997, Golf Digest magazine. And, hey, poor man, you never got to cover the Cleveland Indians, the Cleveland Browns, or the Cleveland Cavaliers, except as a visiting team. Uh, I covered some Angels games at the the old stadium in Cleveland. Oh, the cavernous one with, with have four thousand people in attendance. Yeah, I used to go up. If you bought a ticket for the uh, very top row, you could be sitting behind the dugout. By the end, the ushers let you go. John, the yeah. beginning is fabulous, and I love it. I want to talk about two chapters in it, Mickey Mantle and C.J. Stroud. First of all, let's begin. Let's stipulate Mickey Mantle is not beloved by Cleveland fans at all because he was a remarkable baseball player, but I had actually forgotten Bobby Richardson. I don't remember Bobby Richardson at all. Tell us about Bobby Richardson and Mickey Mantle. Well, Bobby Richardson was the second baseman in those great Yankee dynasty teams in the 50s and 60s, and he was a devout Christian. and which Mickey Mantle was not. Mickey Mantle had a big drinking problem. They were carousing every night. But Richardson would always invite Mantle to uh, go to church with him on Sunday on the road. And occasionally he would. But he kept working on Mantle throughout the course of his life. And towards the end of his life, um, Mantle died when he was 63 from liver disease brought on by the drinking. Uh, But he actually brought Mickey Mantle to Christ towards the end of Mantle's life. And I asked Bobby Richardson, you know, why did you work on him so hard for so many years? And he said, uh, and the exact quote is, I wanted to spend eternity in heaven with my friend. And I go, what a great sentiment. And he did the memorial service, which led to Bobby Richardson getting asked to do memorial service after memorial service. He's like the designated speaker when the great ones die. Yes. He he said he'd done about 12 of them for it. Her ex-teammates, uh, everybody wanted him. He was so good. Now, Bobby Richards is an old name. C.J. Stroud is a big name and current name. And we got friends like Michael Beck listening in Houston. They love C.J. now that he's left Ohio and gone down to sling it for the Texans. I did not expect to find C.J. Stroud in the beginning, uh, John Strigge. Tell people about that. Um, well, I did a lot of research, you know, for this book to try to find dif- different things. And um, I don't remember exactly what I said about it. It's page 63. He, he, he relies on Christ in defeat. Now he loses to oh, that yeah. team up north. And usually you hear athletes celebrating all praise to God. I'm all, you know, all glory to God. And that's easy to do. It's pretty hard to witness when you just got smoked at the shoe by Michigan. Yes, it was. I mean, one of the great quotes, uh, I think I've got in the book. I mean, he just, and it was authentic. I mean, he's an authentic Christian and, you know, he's not putting on airs. That's Romans five, three to five. We rejoice in our suffering. So the kid did not back away even when he loses the biggest game of his career. Right. And this is part of something I tried to emphasize in the book is soundbite witnessing. I mean, there are so many opportunities for Christian athletes nowadays to witness with social media and every game is televised. Uh, every professional game is televised somewhere. Every major college basketball, football game is televised and there's interviews you got. It's very easy to just get a, you know, a quick statement in there testifying to, you know, your, uh, the Lord and savior, Jesus Christ. The beginning collects a whole, a, an assortment of stories from beginning to end, and there's an entire chapter on Tebowing, 
which I did not know until I read the beginning, John Strake. He began with a Jewish guy in a bar. Yes. <laughs> and he, he, I live in Denver, outside of Denver now, and he lives in Denver. But, yeah, it's it, he was in New York City at the time, a big Denver Broncos fan, and they were watching in a bar, and Tebow uh, brought the team back uh, to a victory, and he went outside, and they all posed like Tebow, had somebody take a picture, and he actually uh, started the whole T-Boeing thing. And he, I mean, he got millions of uh, followers for it. Oh, everyone was T-Boeing. And he was Jewish, and but he appreciates. He wasn't mocking the T-Boeing thing. He, he's he's a Jew, but he understood that this was a good thing for everybody. It is not, John. The beginning is currently sold out at Amazon, so I put the link over for Barnes and Noble. I hope you have more in supply, and that Amazon. It's a perfect Christmas present. I am curious about one thing and only one thing. Why are you living in Denver when you could be in California? Uh, you know, I, I did the same thing that our mutual friend Carl did. We we left for brighter pastures. Yeah, get the heck out of California. Even a dedicated, you've got to be a Dodgers fan. And they just signed Otani, so it must be killing you not to be covering it. But John Strage, congratulations on In the Beginning. It's available at Barnes & Noble. It'll be back at Amazon in full stock in a day or so. But go to In the Beginning. John Strage, thank you. It's spelled S-T-R-E-G-E. Uh, congratulations on The Beginning. Great Christmas present. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Arlie. Thank you, Dwayne. I'll be back tomorrow on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.